Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of the Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be reviewing renal or kidney cancer. Not a uniform disease. We're going to have two distinguished urological surgeons guide us through the information about kidney cancer. Dr. John Gore, University of Washington Urology, and Dr. Brian Shuck, UCLA Urology. I'm going to let each of you introduce yourselves. So why don't we have Dr. Gore start? John, why don't you go ahead and give us a little background? Hi, Rich. It's great to talk with you. I'm John Gore. I'm a professor at the University of Washington. My clinical expertise is in urologic oncology with a focus on kidney cancer care, and I'm on the NCCN guidelines for kidney cancer. And Dr. Shuck? So I'm Brian Shuck. I'm an associate professor of urology here at UCLA. I run our multidisciplinary kidney cancer uh, team, and I focus on a lot of efforts at risk stratification and also genetics of kidney cancer, seeing a lot of patients with hereditary kidney cancer syndromes that I manage their multidisciplinary care. And as urologists, you both diagnose and treat kidney cancers. Yes, correct. We do, yeah. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both for taking time in your extremely busy schedules to participate. Dr. Gore, you are making a repeat performance. For those listeners, they can find Dr. Gore on a prior episode where we talk about outcomes and how we measure outcomes and quality, and it's an excellent episode. So I thank you again, <laughs> doubly thank you for taking some more time to talk about another passion of yours, the kidney cancer. So let's start because people hear kidney cancer and they go, well, what is it? And it is not a uniform disease. There are more than one type of kidney cancer. So Dr. Shuck, why don't we just start with you giving a little background and then Dr. Gora join in and we'll enlighten people about what we mean by kidney cancer. So kidney cancer is really a slang term. Basically, it's used kind of synonymously with renal cell carcinoma, which is basically a cancer that is arising from the functional unit of the kidney called the nephron. There are other types of kidney cancers that are thrown in there. There are ones that are in the pediatric space. There are ones that could be arising from the lining of the kidney. But for all intents and purposes, 95% of the tumors we're talking about when we say kidney cancer are renal cell carcinoma. And just for completeness, the lining disease is called John. Gore, do you want to go into that? Yeah, absolutely. That's renal pelvis cancer, which is more akin to bladder cancer in terms of how we treat it. 
in terms of how we treat it with different chemotherapies or sometimes installational agents. So it's an entirely different type of cancer. Yeah, we use that term transitional cell, but people didn't like that. So now it's called like urothelial cancer. Yes. And the urothelium begins in the drainage portion of the kidney rather than the meaty body and continues down a tube that connects the kidney to the bladder called the ureter. And as Dr. Gore said, it's also a very, well, it's, a, it's the most common type of bladder cancer. So just to be complete, we also treat that surgically besides just chemo at times, correct? That's correct. So renal pelvis cancer is often surgically treated with removal of the kidney. What's different is that with renal pelvis or urothelial cancer, you're also worried about other urinary tract structures between the kidney and the bladder. So in addition to just taking out the kidney, you also have to take out the whole ureter all the way down to the bladder. So it's a totally kind of different management strategy. Okay. And we'll go more into treatment in a little bit, but I do want to just emphasize that they are two different types of kidney cancer. And the pediatric, I know neither of you are pediatric urologists, but the pediatric form is commonly called? Wilms tumors is seen usually in children age like one to five range. There are other types of sarcomas that could occur in the kidney and like toddlers, but those are kind of a different type of cancer. A lot of those arising probably from the smooth muscle or really the connective tissue components of the kidney. And we are addressing cancers. Most of the cancers are solid, but there is a variety of the renal cell that can occur in a cyst. And just one of you take, let's talk a little bit about cysts versus cystic carcinoma, because cysts are fairly common and people get nervous when they hear there's a growth or a mass on their kidney. Yeah. Cysts are a really common source of referrals to see a urologist, but a lot of the cysts that we're asked to look at are not concerning. Cysts are just incredibly common. You know, what I always talk to patients about is that your kidney is essentially full of millions of microscopic urine factories. And so, you know, if something breaks down in that kidney, a cyst may form. And so, you know, we see that more than half of people over 50 have at least a cyst in their kidney. It's just a really common finding. The overwhelming majority of these cysts are totally benign and need no further follow-up or no further intervention. And we have a classification scheme that helps us assign our degree of concern that a cyst is cancerous, and it's called the Bosniak classification scheme. And if you are essentially a one or a two, meaning that it's mostly just a fluid-filled, thin-walled cyst, then we don't follow those. If you start to have kind of chunky solid elements in the cyst or thickened inner walls or outer walls, then it may be a three or a four. And those we often do do surgery for because they can be cystic kidney cancers. And are there any solid benign masses that people, you know, here there's a growth maybe picked up incidentally on a CT or ultrasound. They say, oh, you've got to go see the urologist and, you know, they're immediately suspect cancer. But go ahead, Brian, why don't you talk a little bit about that? First of all, there are 22 flavors of kidney cancer that are malignant. There's a bunch of flavors of benign kidney tumors as well, and there are different classes. So the most common tumor that we see in a kidney is something less than a centimeter called a papillary adenoma. That's completely benign. People have them, you know, very often if you look at a kidney under autopsy. But things like oncocytomas, they're benign tumors filled with mitochondria. 
There are tumors called angiomyolipomas. They arise from fat, smooth muscle, and vessel walls. Another one kind of in the Wilms tumor family called a metanephric adenoma. There's a whole host of these benign tumors. And in reality, about maybe 20 to 30% of tumors less than two centimeters that we would remove are ultimately benign. So let's that kind of is a good segue into how do people present or know if they have a kidney cancer? It's a great question. So, you know, back in the olden days, we used to talk about something called the triad, which was sort of a series of three symptoms that people associated with kidney cancer. And those three symptoms were hematuria or blood in the urine, palpable mass. So you could feel a growth or a mass on someone's side and pain on that side. And realistically, in 2023, that triad of symptoms happens less than 1% of the time. What has changed is that there is a much higher frequency of use of imaging to diagnose problems in our bodies these days. And so kidney cancer is one of the fastest growing cancer types in terms of its incidence because of incidental detection, where people are going into the ER or they're getting a CAT scan for an unrelated reason. I just saw a patient today that was diagnosed with a kidney mass when they presented with appendicitis. So they're going in for an unrelated reason. And then lo and behold, they're found to have a kidney mass. And the overwhelming majority of these are asymptomatic. So they don't cause symptoms and they don't cause one of those three triad of symptoms or findings. And again, my era of training, we had CT was just coming on board. So tumors did get quite large where you might feel them. And been in, through my career, I've seen the evolution of the imaging. So let's say somebody incidentally has a mass on the kidney found, and these are usually one kidney or the other. It's rare to have bilateral, but what is the threshold of size of the mass, and it's solid, not just a simple cyst, that concerns you? I will tell you that it all depends on the scenario. Obviously, the larger the lesion, the more concerning it is for cancer. But, you know, even one centimeter tumors, you know, can have, you know, some aggressive elements and they can also be cancerous. So there's not an absolute size where you say that a tumor below this threshold cannot be cancer. But under three or four centimeters, I would say that there's definitely an enrichment for tumors that are benign and enrichment for lower grade tumors. But we also have seen benign tumors that are as large as like 10, 15 centimeters. So there's no really safe size. But the smaller the size, the more reassured you are that they're probably more indolent potential. And Dr. Gora, what do you do with somebody who has a smaller size tumor? Do you biopsy it? Do you follow it? I mean, what do you do to reassure somebody it's not going to hurt them or it's not cancer? Or if it's a cancer, it's a low threshold for spreading? Yeah. So what I always say is, I think one of our most important jobs as doctors is reassurance. And, you know, a diagnosis of a tumor you know, being told in the ER by your primary care doctor that you have a tumor on your kidney or a growth on your kidney is really stressful. So I try to demystify that right off the bat. And so one of the first things I say is, you know, gosh, even if this is cancer, you know, this is something that should not concern you. This should not be a, an overwhelming source of anxiety, because even if this is in a worst case scenario, a cancer, it's very well behaved, it's treatable or observable. And so, you know, the first thing that you need to do is just take a deep breath. And then we talk about how we try to kind of combine the characteristics of the patient, you know, the person in front of us in the office with the characteristics of the tumor. 
And in someone who is younger, like Dr. Shuck, you are going to have a tendency to be more aggressive with these tumors. In someone who is older, like me, you might have a tendency to be more conservative, you know, when you see a, a small tumor on the kidney. You know, what we do with it, it depends. You know, we have moved as a field toward being more conservative with small masses. And Dr. Shook has been a big part of a push to try to figure out how not to over-treat these tumors, how not to put people through aggressive surgeries when we know that the occurrence of benign small renal masses can be as high as 30%, depending on the demographic of the patient in front of you. And so sometimes that means advocating for a biopsy, and that's where the radiology doctors or a urologist can use imaging like an ultrasound to stick a needle in the mass to figure out what it is. There's a lot of misinformation about biopsies. Biopsies are very safe. They don't lead to an increased risk of spreading. There is a small risk of bleeding because you're sticking a needle in the mass, but it's otherwise a very safe procedure. And then one thing that's a really important emerging part of kidney cancer care is called active surveillance. And that's where we might just say, gosh, we're just going to see what happens with this mass. We're not going to ignore it, but you know, we're going to observe it and check in on it again in six months or 12 months and see if it grows. And that's a pretty common strategy for a lot of smaller masses. That doesn't mean we don't ever take them out. And sometimes for the right patient, that's the right thing to do. But we've sort of skewed more toward being conservative with a lot of these smaller masses. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of active surveillance. I'm following a lesion of my own mother, and I love my mother. I tell my patients that all the time. A lot of it depends on really the age of the patient. Like a 40-year-old person, you know, do they want to be following a tumor indefinitely? Or would they have any regret leaving, you know, if they had surgery and ultimately the tumor was ultimately found to be benign? Because we do follow benign tumors and we do monitor them for growth. And we always follow small cancers, even if they're not growing quickly, we monitor them indefinitely. So a lot of it comes down to, you know, should they get more information? If that information is going to help sway them in one direction or another direction, we do advocate for those things like biopsies or more advanced imaging modalities, which are emerging. Well, and if we end up offering them a treatment and it turns out that the tumor is different than they expected, they had any treatment regret, you know, that's, that's the problem. So, you know, there's no one size fit all approach for this. A lot of times you really need to understand, you know, what the patient's preference is. So I always tell a patient, I'm here to help you make the right decision. This is your body. Something's growing in your body. I can tell you what I would do, but ultimately I'm here to help you make your own decision about what's right for you. A lot of patients don't like that because I don't say you must do this, but I think it is being very reasonable when we don't have many head-to-head randomized trials showing what is the best option. And, you know, we used to term these indeterminate. We weren't absolutely certain that they were cancers. Would you say that urology has moved more towards encouraging biopsies than in the past? Our bias days, you know, years past was that small tumor that was biopsied and came back benign, you might have missed the actual tumor. And so we always said a solid tumor is cancer until proven otherwise. Sounds like things have moved a little more towards biopsy. Well, I would tell you that the rate of biopsy nationally is still very low. And it also depends on the region you're in. In some parts of Canada, they biopsy everyone. In the US, the national rates of biopsy from you know, John's co-resident, John Leppard, they did a study many years ago, it's about 9% nationally. It is increasing maybe up to 15%. A lot of those are for larger masses. It depends on how you think it's going to influence practice. 
And I do tell you that we are getting better with radiological imaging. We have multi-phased imaging. Our radiologists are sometimes often able to give us some more information. We may have a novel way to use a PET scan to get more information these days as a new tracer. We also have another scan that's called the Sestamibi. We're occasionally using it, which can tell you maybe that there's a slightly higher risk that something is benign. But there are ways to get more information non-invasively, and I think we're improving and see where the field moves over the next few years. If I uh, am listening and I go, well, I don't want them to have to follow something. I just don't want to get it. What are some of the factors that lead towards kidney cancer, both those that you have some control of and some you just don't? Yeah, most kidney cancer is what we would call sporadic, and that just means it occurs in the absence of known risk factors. The two biggest risk factors that are more behavioral are smoking and obesity. And so if you look globally, one of our former residents looked at this in partnership with the Institute for Health Metric Evaluation here at UW. They do the Global Burden of Disease Project. If you look globally, as a lot of less developed countries age, so 50 years ago, less developed countries had lower life expectancies, but their life expectancies are much longer now. And as you age, you get cancer. There seems to be a stronger correlation of increased incidence of kidney cancer in countries that have a concordant increase in obesity and prevalent smoking rates compared with other countries and more developed countries. So those are kind of two things that seem to be within people's control are smoking and obesity. Other than that, you know, I would say maintaining a healthy lifestyle that includes regular check-ins with your primary care doctor are important. There are some disparities in who gets kidney cancer, and it appears that indigenous individuals tend to present with higher stage cancers than white individuals or black or Hispanic individuals. And that may be because of decreased access to regular healthcare interventions. That's a complete hypothesis. But if you are encountering the healthcare system, if you are seeing a doctor when you are sick, you're more likely to get some kind of imaging study that allows you to have an incidental detection of a kidney mass. Dr. Sheck, you have an interest in genetic risks. Can you talk about a familial history who should be concerned if they have a relative who had kidney cancer or other risks? You know, we do know that there are lots of genes which can contribute to genetic predisposition. We have about 80 to 90 genes, which if they're inherited and they are damaged, it can lead to an increased predisposition of cancer. Women have been talking about this for years with hereditary breast cancer syndromes. And a lot of credit can be up to like Angelina Jolie from the cover of Time Magazine and really brought, I think, discussing the BRCA2 gene to the forefront. But there are similar genes that increase the risk of kidney cancer. There are about 18 of them, which when altered, if they're inherited, they could greatly increase the risk of kidney cancer in a child who would inherit them for the mother or father. We don't know the true frequency of hereditary kidney cancer that is linked to one of these alterations. It is thought to be anywhere from maybe 2 to 8%, depending on the population. So Overall, the majority of this is really sporadic or due to bad luck. There might be some minor inheritable factors. We call them polymorphisms, which if you have enough, I tell it's like inheriting a car. We can test for a broken engine on the car. We can test for a car that has no wheels, but we can't test for some of these things that are minor risk factors, such as 
you know, a hubcap, which is broken, maybe a seatbelt, which isn't working. You can definitely look in some other diseases like prostate cancer or breast cancer, where you have enough of these minor risk factors, you can probably show you have a much higher risk of developing that disease. So again, we know that there are single genes, which are inherited, which probably account for, let's say, two to 8% of kidney cancer, but probably that other 95, 95%, there might be some minor genetic factors, which might be contributing to just saying bad luck. So if somebody's listening and they had a mother or father with renal cell cancer, should they see a genetic counselor? So if you have kidney cancer and you have a first degree relative or maybe one or more second degree relatives with kidney cancer, yes, absolutely. I think it's worthwhile to see a genetic counselor. But if you just had a family member who had kidney cancer and you're just worrying about yourself, you can be reassured that, you know, having one first degree relative with kidney cancer, yes, you have a higher risk of developing kidney cancer. Your risk is actually doubled. But if your lifetime risk in a woman of getting kidney cancer is 1%, or your lifetime risk of getting kidney cancer is man in a man is 2%, and your risk is really doubled, it's still far outweighed by the risk of developing heart disease, having breast cancer, having prostate cancer. We don't routinely screen people who have a first-degree relative who have a kidney cancer and screen their relatives, but we kind of should let them know that if they ever have blood in the urine, they ever have blank pain, which is not going away, they definitely should see their doctor. And you mentioned there seems to be a slight predominance for a male over a female incidence of kidney cancer. How much is just 1% or? It's about three to two, three to two male to female. So we take in urology, we also take care of bladder cancer, which is about eight to two or four to one male to female. It's a little bit more even in kidney cancer. And has either of you seen a migration of younger patients developing kidney cancer? I will say, I think it's a little tricky because I think we have unique non-generalizable practices, and I will bet that that is much more magnified for Dr. Shuck than it is for me because he is nationally and internationally renowned as an expert in the genetics of kidney cancer. I do take care of a lot of syndromic patients, patients with genetic predispositions to kidney cancer, but we are also a large referral center for kidney cancer cases. As the incidence of kidney cancer goes up, so there are two big incidentally detected cancers that seem to be going up more dramatically than other cancer incidence rates, kidney cancer and thyroid cancer, and both are likely due to overuse of imaging. As it goes up, that's going to be driven in part by younger people and incidental detection of small renal masses. So we do see that a lot more it's not an overwhelming trend. And in general, if you look at the rising incidence of kidney cancer, it's still driven by the usual population of patients that get kidney cancer where the median age is in the 60s. So I think there are two competing factors here. And we looked at this trying to say that we're diagnosing kidney cancer earlier because we're imaging, we're having a lot more incidental findings. So yes, if you incidentally find something, you probably find it at an earlier age than you would have if you developed it with symptoms. But the population is definitely aging. And the number of cases per 100,000 continues to increase from 60 to 70 to 80. So you are actually, if patients are living longer, you actually are having an increased rate of kidney cancer in those older individuals. So yes, you probably are having some factors pull the age younger, but you're also having other factors pull the age older. So overall, the median age hasn't really changed that much over the past 10, 15 years. And we mentioned, you know, some of the genomic issues. 
what can you test for? I mean, what is it that's actually being looked at when the, somebody does have a kidney cancer, it comes out, do you actually look at the genomics of the tumor itself? Or is it blood work that you do and you're looking particular genes or what sort of things are moving along in that area of research and actual clinical relevance? I will tell you, we're very good at sequencing tumors, okay? No matter what type of tumor it is, we're really good at sequencing, okay? But none of this is really actionable when it comes to determining the best course of treatment. You know, we have plenty of data in you know, prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer and breast cancer, either genomics, looking at you know, DNA sequencing, or maybe transcriptomics, looking at a signature. In kidney cancer, whether there is a mutation in a driver gene called SETD2 or PBRM1 or you know, P10, it really does not impact your first-line choice of therapy. So most of the sequencing has been done in stage four disease, which is really, you know, our medical oncologists sequence everyone. We're trying to do a project with a, a database just to show that it's probably, you know, rich people that are Caucasian that are getting sequencing done and it doesn't impact the choice of therapy. And it really is just a huge waste of money at this time. I'm hopeful that we will be able to have validated biomarkers, which should be useful that can guide treatment. But right now it's a whole bunch of money being spent for very little gain. Since it was a great segue into actually looking at kidney cancer and treatment, Dr. Shuck, you did mention that, you know, stage four or, you know, metastatic cancer versus localized, we divide treatment into whether the cancer is localized or not. And that treatment has changed significantly through my career. Who wants to attack how we treat standard renal cell cancer? Yeah, I can start. You know, Kidney cancer is still largely a surgically treated condition. And so most people that are going to get treated for localized kidney cancer, kidney cancer that is confined to the kidney, are going to get surgery. Some big changes that have occurred in the last 20 to 30 years are an increased use of what's called partial nephrectomy, where you're just removing the tumor typically with a small rim of normal kidney tissue. So that's a partial nephrectomy where you're trying to leave as much of the kidney behind as possible. And then the use of minimally invasive surgery. So this is using small incisions, telescopic instruments. And most of these surgeries today are done robotically where the surgeon sits at a console that controls the instruments that are inside a patient's abdomen that are doing the surgery. So it's not as if you know you hit a button and go smoke a cigarette while a robot does the work, you are controlling the instruments, but this machine is allowing you to have much more technical specificity than other types of minimally invasive surgery. So those are the two big surgical changes. There is some increasing evidence for the use of stereotactic body radiotherapy for small renal masses. I will say this has been done ad hoc for a while. I've seen some patients that have gotten SBRT to renal masses, but there is some emerging evidence that it can be an effective treatment strategy. I just had a patient with a solitary kidney and a really challenging comorbid health condition history who just got SBRT for a solitary kidney with a renal mass. We'll see how that goes. But largely and predominantly, these are going to be patients that are going to get surgery. Dr. Shuck? Yeah, I mean, right now we know that we have great long-term outcomes with surgery. We have a lot of exciting emergent things that are on the horizon. 
which would be for really select niche populations who would not either want to have surgery or are not good candidates. We're doing a trial with brachytherapy where we put seeds into the kidney because we feel like we can get higher doses of radiation with a much more localized treatment plan. But these are really poor surgical candidates that would need cardiac clearance to get a haircut. That's how sick a lot of these patients are. But the robot, I think, is a major game changer. I call it an enabling technology. And it's basically surgery for dummies where you can take a bad surgeon and you can make them very good with the robot. I don't know about John, but I've given up a lot of the laparoscopic surgery. You know, Even taking out a kidney laparoscopically was very straightforward, but it can make a great surgeon into a absolute master, having an extra arm, having more precision, having all these extra bells and whistles. It does maybe increase the cost, but you have so many extra you know, options when you have an extra instrument in. I rarely do laparoscopic radical nephrectomies now these days of the past five years. Yeah, I try to explain to patients that what the robot really does is imagine five surgeons standing, each holding an instrument that goes through the abdominal wall into, say, where you're working on the kidney. And maybe there's one camera or two, and the other three are used for holding or cutting or burning or cauterizing. And the surgeon has to go, uh, move a little closer. No, not you. You. Uh, no, don't let go. You can't do that. You couldn't verbalize what you needed five people to do. So sitting at the robotic console, that's one surgeon operate all those arms and do all those things that need to be done. And that really brings the precision and the amplification of technique to this microsurgical technique that is now very popular. I still do do a lot of laparoscopic surgery, but one thing I always say to the residents is that a hard laparoscopic radical nephrectomy is going to be way, way harder than a hard robotic radical nephrectomy, whereas an easy radical nephrectomy is going to be very straightforward with both. So doing it robotically takes away a lot of the heterogeneity of difficulty of the surgery technically. I mean, I always recommend to our residents that, you know, if they're prioritizing safety, just to do everything robotically. So I agree with Brian. And radical, we take the whole kidney versus partial, where we're taking the mass or a portion of the kidney and trying to leave enough kidney to function. Let me go back to just the difficult patient who has comorbidities or other major medical problems where you may not be able to do surgery in the way that you would like. What happened to cryo or freezing? the mass. Is that still happening or has that been proven not to hold up? There is some really compelling long-term evidence that supports cryoablation as a very reasonable strategy for small renal masses. You know, I think that the ability to successfully freeze what we think is a kidney cancer is very well-trod territory. It's a very effective ablative strategy. I think where we use it less today is because you know, 20 years ago, doing a minimally invasive, you know, partial nephrectomy was a very technically challenging operation. And it's a much less challenging operation with the advent of robotic surgery. And so I think as robotic surgery has increased in uptake, the use of cryoablation has probably gone down. You know, you're talking about a surgery with a 2% recurrence rate versus a surgery with a 10 to 15% recurrence rate. And so for most patients, they would opt for a partial nephrectomy. So if you look globally, it has gone down a little bit, but I think it's a really important strategy to have available, especially in patients who maybe aren't a surgical candidate for a partial nephrectomy, but you also don't think they're a great candidate for continued active surveillance. 
Interesting. In my day, we used to say radiation would perhaps achieve a 20% success. Of course, radiation maybe wasn't delivered in the way that you are now talking about giving it where there's high dose. And so techniques have improved. But we at you know, in training and back in my era would never really consider radiation as being something for a renal cell. So that's interesting to hear that that is being looked at in this day and age. I'm a big fan of ablation and I do cryo. We have a good collaboration with our radiologist. We kind of alternate, you know, who's in charge, but I do think that active surveillance has supplanted this for a lot of these patients. So for these one or two centimeter renal masses, you know, I'm following them as default as just the ones who are really uncomfortable with surveillance or growing and are not surgical candidates. But the ability to do a minimally invasive, you know, robotic partial nephrectomy, I think is really stealing a lot of them away for these maybe three centimeter masses where, you know, your outcomes are not as good. And, you know, I did two 80 year olds on Monday and they're both home and they both are doing fine. So it's a big game changer than when you needed to make a huge like six inch incision and have to take like someone's rib, which we used to do in the 80s and 90s. Yes. Being familiar with that, it's, as you said, the eloquence of the surgery is just amplified by the easy recovery for the patient. That big incision that we had to make to get to the kidney, take the whole kidney out, somebody would be in the hospital four to five days. Now it's overnight. And their restrictions at home for doing any lifting straining would be minimum six weeks. And now you are disturbing less tissue. It's just marvelous. Let me ask you then, we talked about treatment for localized disease. What are we able to do for patients who unfortunately present with disease that appears to have spread? And where does kidney cancer like to go? And what are some of the scenarios that you've seen? So a lot of the common sites that kidney cancer can spread to are sites that you hear about with a lot of cancers. So the lungs are very common. Lymph nodes in the abdomen or the chest are very common. Kidney cancer often spreads to adrenal glands, which are the little hormone-producing glands that sit on top of the kidney. It can spread to the bones. So it can spread to a lot of the different parts of the body. And so that's why oftentimes when someone is diagnosed with what we suspect is kidney cancer, we get sort of kind of like a full body scan that includes the chest, the abdomen, and sometimes the lower pelvis. This is where we've also seen a big sea change in our involvement as urologists in the care of metastatic kidney cancer. There was a big trial in the early 2000s that showed that there was tremendous benefit to taking out the main kidney cancer when someone had kidney cancer that spread to another part of the body. And now because our treatments for metastatic kidney cancer are better, they work better, the marginal benefit of doing that in the initial management of those patients appears to be a lot less. And so now it seems to be that, you know, if you have a cancer that has spread to other parts of the body, what you need first is treatment for cancer cells throughout the body. And so now we treat those patients with initial what's called systemic therapy. And the reason we call it that is because it's not traditional chemotherapy. They're either drugs that activate your immune system to fight the cancer, or they're drugs that take away the cancer's ability to feed on homegrown blood supply, where the cancer sort of creates its own blood supply to feed itself. The old you know, immunological therapy was to take the tumor and sensitize the patient's own cells to the tumor, give those cells back. So that now they recognize the tumor as an invader and they try to combat the cancer cells. Is that still being done or are you now just amplifying the patient's initial response to any onslaught? So I will tell you that a lot has changed with 
immunotherapy. And, you know, a lot of these old nonspecific immune therapies, you know, did rely on like harvesting tills, doing this stuff. You know, one of our mentors, you know, Ari Beldergren used to harvest tills and he used to do that in the hallway of the NCI with Steve Rosenberg. And, you know, there weren't any like good clinical practice plans for engineering, but they used to just harvest it and just put it back in the patient. There's never really been a positive vaccine trial in kidney cancer. And there was also one that was a negative trial. It was called the ADAPT trial. It was a large trial that urologists did with nephrectomy and putting it back. There's another one ongoing now through the SUO CTC. But, you know, these kind of nonspecific kind of immunotherapies, you know, IL-2 interferon alpha, you know, that does work for some patients, but overall, a lot of them high toxicity and they really were not really broadly beneficial to a large number of patients. And then let's look at a patient who appears to have localized disease, comes out, was an aggressive tumor, high grade, rather large. What do you do to follow those patients? And then if you see a recurrence, generally, where do you see it? You know, kidney cancer, unfortunately, can come back. The risk of it coming back depends on how aggressive it was initially. And there are some risk categories that we use to figure out, you know, what is that likelihood? So for a small localized kidney cancer, the risk of it coming back is quite low. But for cancer that has more aggressive behavior where it's invading the fat around or inside the kidney, or it's invading the veins that drain the kidney. So therefore it's a stage three cancer, or maybe it invades a local lymph node. And as a stage three cancer, those cancers have a high risk of coming back on the order of 30%. And where it can come back are those same places that cancer can spread to. It could come back in the area where the kidney was or where the partial nephrectomy was done, or it can come back in the lungs or other parts of the body. And so that's why we put people on surveillance where every three months, six months, 12 months, depending on how bad the cancer is, we get a repeat set of CT scans. Typically, the most common imaging study that we get is a CT scan, and that's typically of the chest and of the abdomen, and that's typically what we do. Kidney cancer is one of those arenas where because of that risk of it coming back and the need for CAT scans to figure that out, we've been trying for many, many years to figure out if we could give people what's called adjuvant treatment. So adjuvant treatment is the idea that you think you completely remove the cancer, but there could be microscopic cancer cells somewhere in the body that could come back. So what if you hit them with some additional treatment that eradicates those microscopic cancer cells before they can grow up? The scenario I think most people think of this in is, is in breast cancer, where you may have a friend with breast cancer who's on hormone therapy, adjuvant hormone therapy for three to five years. And so for kidney cancer, we've been trying to show that that works for a long time. And most of the trials that we've done have been negative. There was a recent trial that has changed practice a little bit where people are using a drug called Keytruda or Pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. And institutionally, we're pretty aggressive about putting patients on that if they have resected metastatic disease. So someone who you take out their kidney, you take out an adrenal metastasis, and there are no other spots on their CT scans that we think are evidence of the cancer being there. Those patients had a pretty high benefit on the key true to trial. And that tends to be the predominant use of it in our practice. Um, but mostly it's close surveillance to try to catch those cancer recurrences when they occur. And in some patients, this idea of adjuvant therapy. Dr. Shuck? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the major issues we have is we don't know which patients they're going to recur. 
There's no crystal ball. We don't have any genomic or transcriptomic classifiers. We're working very hard to try to operationalize some with some of these clinical trial data sets. But, you know, obviously immunotherapy is very exciting. We were very excited when we saw the results of this Keytruda trial. However, just like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, they're very similar. We have drugs that are PD-1 inhibitors. And unfortunately, you know, even though we had a successful trial with the pembrolizumab or Keytruda, nivolumab prior to surgery and then after surgery in the PROSPER trial was negative. We have atezolizumab, which is another PDL one inhibitor, similar type of trial design, which was negative. We have another trial, which was using that nivolumab or Opdivo, similar PD-1 inhibitor with another immune agent, a CTLA-4 inhibitor called Yervoy. Together, they were ineffective compared to placebo. So, you know, the jury is still out where really the role of immunotherapy, it does not look like it was a fluke but it's very unclear why one immunotherapy would work that differently from another one, which is targeting the same molecule. And we'll have to see overall if there's going to be really a survival advantage in that trial. We want patients to live longer, not maybe have disease slightly come back later, and then maybe they're resistant to that therapy and then they end up dying quicker due to you know inability to treat them in the salvage setting. So we'll have to see. PD-1, brief explanation. The immune system usually doesn't attack itself. There are some autoimmune diseases where the immune system would, you know, attack their own organs, but usually the immune system knows how to recognize self. Well, there are some breaks that when the T cell receptor on the, on the immune cell recognizes a cell, there are secondary signals. They're called checkpoints. They're the breaks. They basically tell the immune system to, hey, I'm your friend. I'm part of your body. Shut down, turn off, leave me alone. Well, it turns out that the cancer cells often are very smart, and they can put up these patches that would make the immune system realize that, hey, well, actually, this is supposed to be there, and it won't mount the immune response. So kidney cancer does produce this pdl one basically protein, the ligand, and it tells the T-cell receptor that there's no second signal because the second signal is not activated. What the immune therapy we have does, they're called checkpoint inhibitors, they basically block that handoff between the tumor and the immune cell. So instead of saying, hey, I'm supposed to be there, it blocks that second signal so the immune system can get reinvigorated and activated and recognize the tumor as being uh, foreign. This is tumor agnostic. A lot of different cancers express this protein. So that's why this immune therapy is approved for lung cancer, melanoma, bladder cancer, colorectal cancer and kidney cancer in the metastatic setting. So that uh, was a great segue into, you know, trends toward improving outcomes. And really looks like that is where a lot of energy is going in research. We're closing up. I always like to leave listeners with some options for finding further information. Any suggestions? I think, you know, this is one where I always like to advocate for advocacy organizations, patient-centered groups. And there are a number of them in kidney cancer, the KCA, which is the Kidney Cancer Association, Kidney Can, and KC Cure have really wonderful patient-centered information that helps patients. The American Cancer Society has a really wonderful website that helps people. I work at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, which has some detailed information about kidney cancer and our kidney cancer program and multi-specialty kidney cancer clinic. And I know UCLA, where Dr. Shuck works, has some great information on their websites as well. Well, any other thoughts or something that uh, we didn't get to that you'd like to share? 
Yeah, I'll just add to what John said about that information. I think information is power. You know, there's not one size fits all, you know, getting more information from a good website, seeing multiple doctors. You know, a lot of times doctors pressure patients, oh my God, this needs to come out tomorrow. We hear that a lot. And, you know, in reality, patients should need to take a step back, get as much information, look at these advocacy sites. I think there's great content. There's also nurse navigators through the Kidney Cancer Association, where you can just get like some of the mentor you through the process. There's a lot of great information out there. You don't need to kind of make a decision, you know, tomorrow if you ever get a diagnosis of a renal mass. Well, it is one of those areas that the change uh, through at least my career has been incredible. From the big open surgery, kidney came out completely, to the robotic partial, to our understanding of the behavior of kidney cancers. It's been incredible. So I thank both of you for your expertise, experience, and your willingness to contribute to this episode. Great. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.